Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Shadow and Luminosity, Descent and Transcendence. The talk was given by Nahama Greenwald on November 4th, 2023, via Zoom. Nahama is a physical therapist, editor, and musician who for 17 years was a member of the Shri Blues Band, which performed Western vowel music. In this talk, she discusses the metaphorical aspect of darkness, which can refer to the dark night of the soul, to a deep descent within ourselves, the individual or collective shadow, a time of transition, grief, or depression, or experience whenever we're suffering. She says that darkness has a fertile, receptive, feminine quality because something wants to be birthed from it, as from the womb, and that the greatest courage is to see and be with all that life brings. A few therapists who attended the talk comment on working with darkness and on the tendency to bypass the dark and focus exclusively on the light. Nahama refers to the dark mother archetype in various traditions and describes her experience with Saint Sarah or Black Sarah, who has been revered by the gypsies in southern France for centuries. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Nahama Greenwald. Really welcome to everybody. I'm honored that you're spending this Saturday night with me and coming to the Saturday night talks to speak about the Dharma together as we explore the topic of shadow and luminosity, descent and transcendence. And before we begin, I would like to first acknowledge the indigenous people the Hohokam and Yavapai Apache nations, whose land we are living on here in this area, and who are the rightful stewards of this land. If we can just take a minute of silence to honor and acknowledge them, and to feel into unimaginable suffering that they have endured for hundreds of years, having their land taken from them and their native cultures destroyed. So please, if we can just take a minute of silence. Thank you. So just a clarifying point, since I'll be using the word darkness frequently tonight and dark, I want to qualify what I mean by that. Mostly what I'm referring to is the metaphorical symbolic aspect. So, for example, it can be a full-blown dark night of the soul or any kind of descent or going down deep within ourselves. It can be a time of depression where we're grieving, where we are investigating, inquiring into our own shadow or to the collective shadow. It can be a time of transition like a liminal state where we are destabilized, or really whenever we're suffering, 
It can also be a time when we're in a health crisis, going through a divorce, dealing with chronic pain. I think you get the idea. So just want to make sure that we are speaking the same language. Sometimes there's a reference to literal darkness, but for the most part, not. The Sufi poet Rumi said, no matter how fast you run, your shadow keeps up. Sometimes it's in front. Only full overhead sun diminishes your shadow, but that shadow has been serving you. What hurts you blesses you. Darkness is your candle. So the talk tonight is actually about healing. It's about the natural impulse towards unity and wholeness through understanding how darkness can illuminate, radiate, and transform. And it's about understanding that there is powerful medicine in darkness, meaning that if we open to it, if we listen to what it's asking from us, then it will reveal its secrets and its wisdom. When we talk about healing, it means that we are interested in bringing balance to our fixation on light. In other words, our preference for and bias towards light. And this is true both individually and culturally in our society. I recently went to this local metaphysical store in town. And I was looking at the posters, and there was one poster that was advertising a workshop called Breathing into the Light. And then there was another poster right next to it that was advertising a class in developing bliss consciousness with rays of light (laughs) in the background. So the point being is that there's a tendency to be biased towards light. We're more comfortable in the light and we yearn for it as a desirable state of spiritual attainment. And really, there's a negative perception of darkness. Our fear and distaste of it is pervasive in our culture. And one of the ways it shows up is as prejudice and racism that is so rampant in the world that prefers white bodies over black and brown bodies. And so culturally, darkness and blackness have been undermined for hundreds of years so as to promote and justify the purity and superiority of lightness and whiteness. But every human being has a connection to darkness in a primordial sense because we are born from our mother's womb. The dark can be a powerful, sacred place, a place of vision where we receive transmissions and revelations about ourselves and about the mystery of life and death. The writer Sonia Renee Taylor says, the sacred nutrients of wisdom, creation, and transformation dwell in darkness. Who might we become? What miracles might our world give forth if we learn not only to make peace with the dark, but to honor her for all she teaches us about the glorious, enigmatic existence of ours? So one of these revelations might be to see or reclaim 
precious attributes or qualities about ourselves that have been lost to us. For example, the darkness is also where we sit with our discomfort. It's where we investigate, where we inquire into our own shadow within us. It's where we come clean and look honestly at what's hard for us to admit about ourselves. It's where we face our denial, investigate our perceptions, attachments, assumptions, and our fear of death. It's also where we find the courage to face childhood, ancestral, and collective trauma. So in times of facing darkness, what's needed is to let go of our drive to succeed, our clinging to certainty, the tendency to want to fix, achieve, solve, strive, conquer, and improve. So in other words, we can't power our way through it. So it's in the darkness where we slow down and we begin to unwind and unravel. It's where we face our fear and terror that is so intense that it makes us tremble. So it's where we let our hair down. It's where we allow ourselves to grieve fully, wildly, and without shame for our loss of control because we need to howl and wail for what we love and what we've lost. It's where we wait and wait sometimes for an undetermined amount of time in what's called a liminal state, or we can call it a bardo state or a transitional state. It's a state of not knowing, where there's no quick fixes or easy answers. So it's here where we listen for the voices of wisdom and revelation that stir within us and want to be birthed, that want to be brought forth. So in other words, the darkness, it has a fertile, receptive, feminine quality because something is wanting to be birthed, to be brought forth from within ourselves. So we relinquish our hard edges and we become softer so we can listen in the silence. And I want to make an important point. It's probably one of the most important points that I can make this evening, which is that this is not about glorifying darkness over light. And it's also not about healing from darkness so we can be free of it and then move upward towards the light in the state of vertical transcendence. It's about healing with and through darkness and emerging into the light of greater clarity, wisdom, maturity, and most importantly, love. And that light, which is born out of darkness and out of our suffering, and which is the ground of transformation and awakening, is illuminating and clear. There's a woman named Zenju Earthland Manuel. I don't know if anyone's heard of her. She's a Black woman. She's a Zen priest, a medicine woman. She's a poet. She's a writer. And really, she was one of the inspirations for this talk. So I have to give her credit. She really inspires me. And I want to read you a quote from something that she says. There is no roadmap in opening to darkness. There is only your prayer 
your call, your cry, your wisdom. These will lead you back to your wild self, the being who once knew how to crawl in the dark, not looking for light, but being with darkness, knowing light is there. Sacred darkness, abundant darkness, illuminating darkness, primordial darkness. Can you allow it to be ever evolving as it teaches you? Can you allow it to make you tremble long enough to show you its kind but sometimes harsh nature? We are on an eternal pilgrimage of the intangible. Anyone who can open to darkness is a true seeker. Seekers are alike in that they reach into the mystery of life each time they make an inquiry or make a step away from certainty. The first act of life is dwelling in the darkness of our mother's womb. The second act is coming from the darkness into more darkness, as we do not know the world upon entrance. And thus we seek. We cry out for guidance and assistance. We seek refuge. We are constantly morphing into newness, and yet the ancient primordial darkness remains as a wonderland for us to wander in, discovering the magic of this life. The greatest courage is to see all that life brings, whether it is acceptable or not. When darkness is welcomed, then nothing and no one is rejected. When we run from darkness, we run from ourselves. So as human beings, we move through cycles of death and rebirth our whole lives, meaning that we are interacting with the archetypal energies of darkness and light. And so we understand that darkness gives shape to light and light shapes the darkness. So those who open to darkness within themselves, who open to dark times, are seekers who have the courage to dive into the mystery of life and step away from certainty in order to access a deeper truth and vision. The Black writer James Baldwin, I'm sure most of you have heard of him, he says this, the precise role of the artist is to illuminate the darkness, blaze rose through vast forests, so that we will not, in all our doing, lose sight of its purpose, which is, after all, to make the world a more human dwelling place. So he's referring to the creative process, but we can say that it applies to us as spiritual practitioners. Because as practitioners, we aspire to illuminate the darkness by being warriors and descending into it in order to work with our delusions and be fully with our suffering. So we're not in denial of our suffering. We don't turn away from suffering, but we understand as practitioners the value of suffering and how we can use it as fuel for our lives and for our practice. And hopefully, in doing this, we bring greater compassion and clarity, not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. That's our wish and our desire. 
Everybody doing okay? Yeah? <laughs> okay. I want to talk about the koan of the red thread. Has anybody ever heard of the koan of the red thread? It's a Buddhist koan. And I heard this from Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams, who is a Black woman, a Zen Buddhist teacher. And it's relevant to our topic because it's a koan that looks at the apparent dichotomy between light and dark, between what we can call the underworld and the upper world, but which actually isn't a dichotomy at all. So the koan is, why is it that even clear-eyed bodhisattvas cannot break away from the red thread? And a bodhisattva is someone who has found the path and is committed to it. That's the definition of a bodhisattva. And the color red is associated with many things, some of which are blood, menstruation, prostitutes, the scarlet letter, passion, sensuality, as some examples. In other words, things that are messy and bleeding. So why can't people committed to the pristine path of awakening, cut the umbilical cord with the ground of everyday life. So on the one hand, there's the pristine dharma, enlightenment, the pristine nature of the path, which is exhilarating. It's brilliant. It's magnificent. And then there's life with its confusion, its sorrow, and its joy, and relationships. The labyrinth of relationships, which can be messy at times too, as we all know. And how do we bring those together? Is there any reconciliation or meeting point between the pristine Dharma and this wild, unpredictable, and out of control life? So, Rev Angel, she goes on to say that it is actually in the wild, what she calls the wild rawness of life which is where grief lives and trauma and pain and illness, for example, that it's there that the path becomes real. It's where the rubber meets the road and where we experience what it is to live the Dharma from our gut, from our bones, and from a place of embodiment. So the true path includes and embraces the full spectrum of darkness and light. Instead of not wanting to get our hands dirty, it's beneficial to lean into it and get to know it. The Western spiritual teacher, Jason Schulman, says, Awakening is only another path to healing what it means to be a human being. So in this context, we can look at the koan of the red thread as a koan about healing about understanding that there is no separation between these beautiful, pristine dharmic principles and the ground of our lived experience of everyday life, where we struggle with relationships, feel our suffering, and experience the entire spectrum of human emotions. So instead of despising or turning away from those edgy, dark places, we welcome them. We say, come on in. 
when I was doing research for this talk, I came upon a woman named Susan Murphy, who I had never heard of before. She's an Australian Buddhist teacher, and she wrote a whole commentary on this koan of the red thread. And I just want to read you. It's fabulous. And I just want to read you a quote from her. So she says, enlightenment and purity, as the preferred states, do not survive the gaze of the koan. Fear and disdain for bodily life wither there. Strong feelings can be embraced as powerful entry points on the path of practice. And sexuality is at home. In that why of the koan, we can't unearth a deep inquiry into the nature of the human being and the compelling lifelong practice of bringing who we are into congruence with the immediacy of the world. Emptiness bleeds. I love that. It's so evocative, that juxtaposition. Emptiness bleeds. So this koan invites us to include all facets of life and death in our practice because awakened mind cannot be separated from this joyful, painful life. And on the contrary, it arises out of it. We are humanly entangled in emptiness. That's what Susan Murphy says, the Buddhist teacher. We are humanly entangled in emptiness. That's a beautiful turn of a phrase. Had to include that. So that's the koan of the red thread. I want to talk about one more thing. And then if you all have any comments or anything you want to say, please do so. Okay. So I can't do a talk without talking about Michael Mead. And for those who don't know who he is, he's many things. He's a fabulous storyteller. He's a drummer. He's a poet. He's a writer. And he brings this Jungian mythic perspective to understanding the self and the world. I consider him to be a real visionary. And I want to just talk about a podcast that I listened to a while back where he's talking about St. John of the Cross. And there's a quote attributed to St. John of the Cross, which says, if a person wishes to be sure of the road they tread upon, they must close their eyes and walk in the dark. Well, what does that mean? Because isn't that counterintuitive? Don't we want to have our eyes open so we don't trip and fall flat on our faces? Don't we want to keep our eyes open? St. John on the cross says, no, if we want to know where we are going, we have to close our eyes and walk in the dark. So Meet's comment about this is that what we are looking for must be found in the darkness. From an archetypal perspective, darkness and chaos always precede creation. So before creation, before rebirth, we descend, we fall. And he speaks about this from a collective world perspective, but it also applies to us personally as well. 
So collectively, it's quite obvious that we are going through a dark night of the soul. And we are in a liminal state. We don't know what's going to happen. It's a time of great destabilization. So he says that if we want to see, and he's talking about collectively, if we want to see, we have to close our eyes and allow ourselves to be pulled into the dark by the weight of the tragedy and confusion in the world. And my understanding of this, he's not saying get so depressed about it that you can't function. He's saying that we need to allow ourselves to be touched by what is happening. And then when it's our own individual lives, we close our eyes, metaphorically speaking, and we descend into the depths of ourselves. So it's here where we sacrifice certainty and we surrender to losing our way without trying to fix it and make it all neat and comfortable. And sometimes it means that we have to fall apart. So part of the process of awakening is that we accept these liminal conditions and we accept uncertainty so that we can awaken more deeply and fully to ourselves. And this liminal state, this time of destabilization, uncertainty, we're we're descending into the depths of ourselves. It's really a time of creativity and possibility because we're ripe to learn something about who we really are. This is a quote from Michael Mead. When the outside world becomes full of darkness and uncertainty, the soul expects that we turn inward as we would do in the midst of a vision quest. We have to become lost. We have to face the dark in order for the vision to arise. In liminal conditions, we can feel lost. And yet, it is just in those conditions that we can find a sense of freedom from the ways in which we habitually limit ourselves. And he goes on to say that these limitations are typically developed to survive our childhood. So facing darkness in the personal realm can often mean facing up to our childhood wounds, our childhood trauma. And in the dark, we may see the rejected, neglected aspects of ourselves. And yet it is these very aspects that hold the qualities that we need in order to grow psychologically and spiritually to become more fully ourselves who we were intended to be. Carl Jung says, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. So again, this is the theme for tonight, that it's here in the dark where healing can begin, where purification happens, And it's where revelations occur. And this is interesting. I find him to be so insightful. He says that on a collective level, when a society won't face its own wounds, when a society is in denial about its own darkness, then this distortion happens. So that instead of genuine visions, people develop conspiracy theories. And instead of potential freedom, 
people under the banner of freedom actually deny other people their freedom. And so people become more rigid, more restricted, and more hard-lined about things that don't really count when a society will not face its own shadow, basically. That strikes me as being true. So what he's saying, and you know, a lot of the things that I talk about are things that I can verify with my own experience. And I can testify that there's great value sometimes in falling apart and sacrificing certainty because we have a unique opportunity to see that which has habitually limited us because of the ways we had to adapt and survive as children. And this is painful as we face those childhood wounds and childhood trauma. But if we do the work, the possibility, the great possibility is that we become more fully ourselves. We become who we were intended to be. And this is freedom. And that freedom is sweet. So this is a purification process where we go down. That's where the healing begins. Okay, comments. Anything at all. Talking about the darkness, approaching it and moving through it and facing it. It's the opposite of spiritual bypassing. So many spiritual seekers tend to bypass, to jump over the dark (laughs) within themselves and in life. And with the world as it is today, with all of the deep darkness happening, I see that some spiritual people who keep focusing on the positive and on the light and all of that exclusively don't want to know Mm -hmm. what's going on. And our nation doesn't want to know about our very dark history. Some people in the United States are wanting to ignore that, to bypass that. And as therapists, this is what we do with people. We go, we walk with people into their darkest spaces. And it's just such a privilege. So this is so many aspects of my life, addressing this and bringing this forward because it's so rich and so important. Let me just say I'm very touched Mm. by what you're saying. For me, my periods of breaking apart and being overcome by the darkness changes in my life in different ways have helped me evolve to be much more compassionate. Mm -hmm. More compassionate with myself and more compassionate with the world, with others, understanding more. The skills of self-compassion are really, really important. Going through this, delve into the darkness and have a toolkit. The toolkit, first of all, is not rejecting the darkness and not rejecting the change, but it could be having your hand on your heart. It could be asking uh, spiritual energies to help you in whatever form. And there's an interdependence. We're so connected. 
So in those times, it's also an awareness of the interconnection and that people who show kindness when we're going through this time to us are so treasured. And it's their kindness. It's their heart space. It's their compassion. It's their understanding. It's their patience. Because often we don't have the kindness towards ourselves, the patience with ourselves, the broad understanding of ourselves. The darkness in those periods of time is very difficult, feels and seems overwhelming for an indefinite amount of time, the uncertainty of that. And I I will speak as a male, men are supposed to do it by themselves. So it's like, oh, not possible. (laughs) I mean, there's great learning in that. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I was talking to a friend, and I realized I was in heaven and hell at the same time. She was saying to me, how are things going? "Mm, Well, there were some things that I was really struggling with, and then... There were things that I was really ecstatic about. And I think that both those things can happen at the same time. It's my experience that heaven and hell oftentimes occur at the same time. And I don't think that's a problem or even a contradiction. I think that we move through these archetypal states of darkness and light, heaven and hell, all the time, maybe multiple times during the day. There may be times when I'm in a heaven realm and I'm not thinking about the hell realm or I'm not thinking about the darkness at that moment. So one sometimes is more predominant than the other. But I find that when we do this work, we become bigger internally so that we can just hold more of everything. We hold more, we feel more, we bear more. And even in dark times, I can access something in myself that is joyful and beautiful. And I think that's an important point. It's not like, oh, everything's wonderful right now, and that's it. I think for some people, they don't see that. They don't feel both of those at the same time, it's either one or the other. But in my experience and people that go into depth with their emotional lives, that it's oftentimes the case. Okay, I'm going to read a poem. Guess what it's about? Darkness. (laughs) I'm going to read some poems about light. That's coming, but not yet. This is a poem. It's called Sweet Darkness, and it's by the Irish poet David White. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. 
Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So it's this idea of darkness as solace. It's where we go to rest when we are tired, both literally and metaphorically. I mean, sometimes it can be a relief just to lay down in the dark, turn off the lights, lay down in the dark and rest or go to sleep. So we go into the dark to be deeply with ourselves, to come home to our true selves, to discover something about ourselves. And I think that this is the invitation that the poet calls us to. So it's where we can see more clearly without the noise and the chatter of the outside world. Social media, news, the opinions and expectations and judgments of others, all of it. So darkness can be empowering because it gives us the space and the respite so that we can make a distinction between what is false and what is true for ourselves. So I love this poem, and David White is a fantastic poet. Well, I can't do a talk on darkness and light without reading a couple of quotes from Carl Jung, right? I have two quotes. One of them I'm sure most of you have heard of. It's a well-known quote, but I find that it's timeless in its wisdom. So the quote is, knowing your own darkness is the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. Now, I've read this before. But what struck me this time was that very last sentence when he says, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. Not the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself, but to accept oneself completely. So I want to ask all of you, what are your thoughts about this? Why is it terrifying? to accept oneself completely. What's terrifying about it? This is what I've been pondering. And I have my own thoughts about it, but I'd like to hear from you all. So anybody that would like to say anything. I think it's terrifying because it's the unknown. It's the void. It's the thing that hasn't happened yet. It's the thing that I don't know whether I'm going to be able to hold it or experience it fully or run from it. So it's just encountering the unknown against a backdrop of possible humiliation, against a backdrop of possible failure or inability to hold in it, hold on to myself in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. It's all those things. It's the visibility of it, too. Moments occur when that terror and fear arise 
facing the look from another or facing the rejection or acceptance of another, all of that can be pretty terrifying to the ego. Because if I'm really willing to stand in my own vulnerability, I've got to be able to feel that. And that's not an easy thing to do, to be with it to the extent that I really am willing to embrace it and feel it fully. It's not an easy thing to be a human being. No, it's not. Dovetailing on what she was saying, uh, to hold on to oneself in the midst of going through whatever you're going through, the unknown and experiencing it. What's terrifying is I've constructed this idea of my egoic sense of who I am, which is not who I am. And that's what falls apart in this situation. And really, it calls for giving up this identification with how I think I am, who I think I am, how I respond to things, even in a certain time, maybe what I've thought my purpose in life to be. An example is when one sees oneself in a positive way because they're a rescuer. I can talk that for myself and from clients. I mean, I have an intention to be helpful, to be compassionate and kind. And I know on some sense that as circumstances change, I can be capable of many things I didn't think I was capable of, Mm. which I would have considered very negative in the past. Yeah, one of the thoughts that I had was that I think we have a fear of knowing ourselves because of what we might discover, and not just about our darkness, but about our light. So I don't know about you guys, but I have a shadow for a damn good reason, (laughs) which is that it's exactly by definition, it's the place where I put everything I do not want to see. All the stuff as a child that I thought was completely horrible and would destroy me if I looked at it. So I think by definition, what's in the shadow is the absolute thing we do not want to see and feel it will destroy us because that's what we felt when we were were children. Now, of course, as adults, we look at it and it's not going to destroy us, but try telling that to yourself when you're being confronted with the shadow, right? So that was my thought on that quote. Yeah. I worked with a Sufi teacher years ago who said that if you could really see your ego, you would die of fright. So if you could truly see what you were up to, you would die of fright. Now, that might be true, but when you read that quote by Carl Jung, what occurred to me is that it's terrifying because it is unbearably intimate. Can you say more about that? Without getting myself in a lot of trouble? That's no, okay. you know, it's like to know oneself completely. That's a very intimate thing. To be in love with another person like that's also a terrifying thing. And we get to do that, hopefully, sometimes. But we have to do that with ourselves in terms of what Carl Jung is speaking about. It's very intimate. So that's what it is for me. Yeah, what came to my mind was this word completely. I don't know if I ever can know myself completely because I'm surprised by all this shadow and dark and bright sides of me who are coming up in the situation. I can see myself in the moment, but there are so many, I think, 
undiscovered areas or qualities, shadow sides or bright sides in me, which will come up when I'm aging or when I'm called to handle some situations which I don't know in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so from a perspective of mind, I can analyze myself or go in myself, but I learned over the years only to see, oh, this is also part of me. The whole spectrum of human behavior is in me. Yeah. So I would say I'm not a very angry person. And then the first time became really angry with somebody, then I was surprised about myself. And so I think I never will know myself completely. Yeah. That's one thing. And, and only one thing for when you read this poem. So I'm from Germany and it's like the beginning of the dark times in Germany, the fall and the winter. It's dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe the sun comes up at nine or 9.30 in the morning. We do a lot with candles and sitting in the morning together and celebrating the darkness in a completely different way than we do that here. So I grew up with a lot of darkness around me and I was never afraid of the darkness. So it's part of my upbringing to embrace it. I love dark. <laughs> yeah, to consider this idea of shadow and darkness, I need to make it tangible for myself and not just talk about it in principle. Not necessarily to speak all my personal stuff that's unbearably intimate, but I have to go there within myself to really work with this, work with these ideas. I don't go, I don't think anybody does <laughs> go looking for darkness. It seems to find us, it seems to find me. And that can be with outer things that happen, like a serious illness. I haven't had that, but I just spoke to someone yesterday with a serious illness or loss of a loved one which i have experienced life is all bright and nice one day and then the next day it's another experience entirely and yes there's the dharma that everything is an expression of the divine but then there's relating with that which is completely challenging from the human standpoint. But there's also not just events that happen for me, but also when things could just come up, when childish parts of myself get exposed. I may not even realize so much that they're there, or I just kind of push them away, and I don't even realize I'm pushing them away. But then all of a sudden it comes up. My reference point for this was when I did therapy decades ago. There were things that I would not talk about at all. but with a therapist who was really supportive and had no agendas. So much came out that was just so helpful for me to look at the darkness. But I find that, oh, it's not just one and done. Things continue to arise. And I'm just speaking for myself personally. What I have found important for me to do, I've avoided this pretty much at all costs, is talk to somebody. It's important for me sometimes to open up and let that out rather than hold it in containerized within myself. It can even be just one person. I'm saying this because this has recently happened for me. I need that 
sometimes to come out of my own bubble and to be real about what I see as childish parts of myself mm-hmm. that I would rather not admit to and would rather keep this persona, this facade in place all the time. But that's not where the transformation is, that's right. as, as you're saying. I just want to thank everybody for your vulnerability in what you're sharing. I think what everybody has said has been just really moving and deep. Does everybody know who Pema Chodron is? The Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, I'm sure most of you know who she is. I want to read a quote of hers that I really love that pertains to what we're talking about. She says, In the process of discovering our true nature, the journey goes down, not up, as if the mountain pointed toward the earth instead of the sky. We move down and down and down, and with us move millions of others, our companions in awakening. Right there, we discover a love that will not die. As my teacher Lee Lazowick used to say, God does not live in the sky. That's what I think of when I read this quote. So again, the themes of the evening, instead of seeing the journey of awakening as being about ascending and transcending, on the contrary, it's a journey that moves down and down and down because it's the descent into the depth of our humanness, into our embodied life, into our difficult emotions, our shame, our depression, our joy, our confusion. And that's where we discover a love that will not die. It's where we surrender. It's where we fall into the heart of creation itself in order to awaken and learn how to love. So that love doesn't die because it's not the personal love that's based on if someone is loving us back, if we're getting our needs met, are we getting the attention that we want? It's not that kind of a love. It's the love of the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva that walks through life, that walks through heaven and hell with an open heart, a tender heart, a broken heart, and serves with both compassion for self and compassion for the world. And I love this quote of hers. I see her as someone who really walks her talk. So it's that love. Remember the definition of the bodhisattva? Anyone who has found the path and is committed to it. So we walk through heaven and hell with an open heart, a broken heart, and we have compassion for the world. We have compassion for self. I used to always leave myself out of it. It was always about compassion for others. It's like, what about me? I forgot about myself. I didn't think it mattered. But as I've come to learn in my own descent process, it matters a lot. So it's compassion for self and compassion for the world. All right. 
I want to switch gears and I would like to pay homage to the dark mothers who are seen in religious and cultural traditions all over the world. And just as a disclaimer, I am no scholar, and there are many that I don't know anything about. However, I honor and revere those that I have encountered over the years. And I really felt like in our conversation tonight, it was important to acknowledge them. So some of the dark mothers include Makali from the Hindu tradition, the Black Madonna from the Catholic tradition, Hecate from the Greek tradition, Oshan from the Aruban tradition, Ekajati or Blue Tara from the Buddhist tradition, and then there's Black Sarah from the Romani or the Gypsy tradition. And these dark mothers, they are powerful, they're primordial, they're fierce, they're merciful, they're sensual, and they're associated with many qualities. Some of those qualities being healing, protection, fertility, purification, transformation, wisdom, and great compassion. So I would like to talk about one in particular, St. Sarah or Black Sarah from the Gypsy tradition. And she resides in a thousand-year-old church in southern France, in Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer. And in all honesty, I really wasn't planning on talking about her (laughs) specifically. But as I was working on this talk, I could hear this voice within me just saying, you really need to talk about her. And so I listened to myself and decided to talk about her. How many of you have heard of her? Okay. So Saint Sarah, she's called Saint Sarah, Black Sarah, or she's also called Sarah Al-Kali because she has dark skin like the Hindu goddess Kali, who's worshipped all over India. And she is the deity or the patron saint of the Romani people or the gypsies. And she's also been called the patron saint of the displaced, oppressed, and marginalized people. And every year, Thousands of people make pilgrimages to this ancient thousand-year-old Catholic church in southern France, where she resides in this womb-like underground crypt of the church. She's in a kind of a cave. And over 20 years ago, the band I was in at the time, Shri, we were in southern France on tour. And we had a little bit of extra time one day, so we made a pilgrimage to see her. It was a long time ago. But what I recall is we walked into this ancient, ancient old church, and it was full of lit candles everywhere. There was a hush in the church. There were some people in the pews that were praying quietly. So we descended. You had to descend the stairs into the crypt where she resides. And one thing I remember very distinctly were those steps because there was this big dip in the steps because of all the thousands upon thousands of people who descended them to see her and receive her darshan. 
So we walked down into this crypt, and this was southern France in the summer. It was hot. It was really hot. It was a small space. There weren't windows and a breeze blowing or anything like that. The whole mood of it was very, very strong. And my impression when I got down those steps was that I was in a sacred space. And there was something about the heat and the enclosed small space, which just amplified the sacredness. And there were lit candles, there were crutches that lined the stone walls, there were cards and plaques from people with words of gratitude, there were a few photos of loved ones, there were flowers, and Black Sarah was dressed in layers and layers and layers of colorful dresses and shawls. And she had jewelry around her neck and a crown on her head. And I have two photos to show you of her. So can you see this? This is Black Sarah. And this is the crypt. So in seeing her for the first time, I was just struck by how powerful her feminine presence was. And as you can see from the photo, there's just this dark luminosity in her face. She was so alive and she exuded compassion, healing, and mercy. So she was the dark mother and her boundless mercy was so palpable and it just struck me and I sat at her feet and my eyes just filled up with tears. I just sat and I meditated, and at one point, there was something I was really struggling with at the time, and I was really moved to ask her for healing. I didn't really intend to, but that's what was coming up for me. So I just poured my heart out to her silently, and what was so amazing is that I felt like she heard me. That's how strong her presence was. And people make pilgrimages to her from all over the world to sit with her. They ask for healing and blessings. They light candles, they pray, and they weep. And there are many reports of spontaneous healing in her presence, which there are crutches lining the wall, I guess, from people that came in with crutches. But by the time they left, they didn't need the crutches anymore. Another thing that's so cool about her is that every year, in May, 10,000 gypsies come from all over Europe for a week-long celebration of her that culminates in a procession. They carry her, they take her down the street to the Mediterranean Sea, and they're singing and they're offering prayers. They're going to the sea with her. And this is also done in India with Kali, where thousands of devotees take her to the Ganges River and bathe her. So it's very similar to Kali. So with Black Sarah, they take her to the Mediterranean Sea, they bathe her, and they change her clothes. And interestingly, she's not recognized by the Catholic Church, but she's tolerated. She gets to be down there because she's hugely popular. So it's really important to acknowledge my experience of what happened when I had the privilege of sitting with her and receiving her darshan.
Do you want to add anything to that? I was down there with another person in our party, a gentleman, and I was sitting there and everything you said, it was very strong. But what was really strong for me was watching his interaction, how it impacted him. He went over to her and he stayed there for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And it was a person who had had a very trying relationship with his own mother. It seemed like he really got something that he really needed from being with her. Mm -hmm. She's supposed to be the daughter of Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Catholic Church doesn't want to acknowledge her because there was a possibility of her also being Jesus' daughter. That's cool that you got to see her and be with her. Yes. Well, we only have a few minutes and I want to end by reading two poems by a poet named Dorothy Walters. She passed away, I believe, this year. She was well into her 90s. And these are two poems that evoke images of light and color. And I thought it was a good way to end tonight with all the talk about darkness, to read poems about light and color. A little bit about Dorothy Walters. She was a professor of English literature in the Midwest. And when she was in her 50s, she had this profound kundalini awakening experience that completely changed and transformed her life. And she spent years and years just trying to digest it and integrate it. She wrote a lot of poems based on that experience. So I want to read two of her poems. The first one, is called What the Tulip Said. Down here, where darkness thickens in this tight sleeve of earth, and filaments of root run netted like a brain, we have forgotten about light, the candles of the sun, lost emblems of that other world. Here, our only preoccupation is patience, our sometimes hope, the whispered news that one day soon all this will change and we will be transmuted, transposed to pure color, scarlet, sapphire, gold, flashing banners in the breeze, hands stretched upward, signaling to those who pass, see us, what we have become, this bright sensuousness, unfurling edifice of joy. The second poem is called Like Flowers That Bloom at Midnight. I know all about living in caves with candles and scented prayers, crossing the desert which never ends seeking the one who is always near, spreading my deer skin in the forest depths where the spirits of the blue-bodied gods hang like shadows of watching birds. With the others, I wove a story of connection, 
something mysterious and inscrutable, we call to appear with our fires and recitations, our songs of supplication and praise. A voice spoke through us as we chanted our words in the centuries past. This time, I came in another guise. I roamed the avenues, mingled in the markets with the restless crowds, watched and listened in alarm as the world reeled and spun down towards its approaching dark. And I saw that this was the time to take on new knowledge, move through different space, hear with unfamiliar ears, speak with strength and voice, atoms transfigured, senses restrung. It is happening to us all, blazing illumination, beauty erupting in the midst of despair, splendor unveiled on a field of pain. We are being filled with light we do not comprehend, lifted toward essence, assaulted by nameless love at this juncture of the finalities, intersection of the unimaginables. This is why we came. That pretty much concludes what I want to say, except to pray your heart out for what's going on in Israel and Palestine, please. That's what I would end with. Thank you.